Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. And this is our first of a month of special horror-themed episodes here at What Did We Miss? Headquarters. It's spooky. Those spooky guys. <laughs> hey, so y- you know how like Dracula, at least the original movie version of Dracula, is kind of has that big laugh that's yeah. you know everyone kind of associates with Dracula. Does, was that ever ruined for you by the Count from Sesame Street? So now when you hear that laugh, you just automatically think of the Count. No, I don't think so. It does for me. Well, I mean, because I don't think that's a necessarily a unique position to be in. I think there are a lot of things that, um, you know, people kind of come to the parody first. Actually, there was um, Amy Nicholson did a, a, a three-part podcast series with Tarantino talking oh, yeah. talking about, did you listen to it? Yeah, it's great. He talks about missing Enter the Dragon when it was in its original run, but he saw, I think, Kentucky Fried Movie, which has an yeah. extended uh, Enter the Dragon parody. And then when he finally got to Enter the Dragon, it was it was a little less special because he knew all the beats because the the parody was so close to it. There's lots of stuff like that where you sort of get to the, you know, the the copy of the copy even before sure. you get to the source. I think I'm just kind of um, when I hear the what uh, 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 the first thing that pops in my head is is the count. Sure, I but like the count. I like the count too, and yeah. I, I can separate the two. Do you have any strong feelings about Francis Ford Coppola's? Dracula from the early 90s? Oh, yeah. yeah. Very strong feelings, yeah. For it or again it? I love it. Yeah, it's great. I think it's amazing. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because that's at a point where Hollywood was sort of on the precipice of switching everything over to digital. And here's this movie that is all practical, done in camera. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. And it's a direction that we easily could have gone in as well, where we double down on these beautiful practical effects, in-camera effects, but we didn't. Uh, so it's kind of like a crazy what-if thing, but I, man, I love that movie. A lot of weird choices. Yeah. And it's a lot of it is so big and so ambitious and so just bold in its weirdness Yeah, and its theatricality that it's easy to overlook, like, you know, the, the, the weak links, like Keanu Reeves' awful... His British accent, accent. Um, or even even Anthony Hopkins is is pretty ridiculous. In yeah, that but movie. he's so good. Like he's just devouring scenery. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, what have uh, what have you been up to? What have you been what have you been consuming? What have I been consuming? Um, a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think so. I've been trying to do like a catch up for 2019. Okay. So I went and saw the farewell. Oh, how was that? I liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Um. You know, it has a hook. Uh, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this movie, uh, but it's by uh, Lu, uh, the director Lulu Wong, and uh, it's based on a true story where her story, right? Yes, where her grandmother was diagnosed with cancer, and they said she had like three months to live, and her family all decided that they weren't going to tell the grandmother that she was going to die. I guess this is something that they do culturally in in China. Uh, a lot of people don't tell their loved ones that they're they're about to die to save them to. They, they say in the movie, like, to keep that burden. They carry the burden as opposed to the person that's dying. Yeah, I heard her on the radio talking about it. Yeah, yeah. the sense is that the knowledge of their rapidly impending mortality sort of uh, exacerbates it. 
and that by keeping it from them, they're going to have a happier, marginally longer life or something. And the movie is that sort of culture clash between the main character who was brought up in America, correct? Yeah. And sort of her wanting to be honest and tell her grandmother what's happening versus, you know, this heritage that she's sort of sort of bumping up against. And yeah, it's it's really um, observational. It has a lot of little details about, you know, cultural things like you're saying and, and but also family things that are instantly recognizable for even us over here in the West. So it doesn't really have any easy solutions. It doesn't feel like a lot of Hollywood movies. And in fact, in interviews, she was told that, oh, you know, producers told her that, oh, you, you're going to have to change this. You're going to have to make this more, you know, you're going to have to make this character more American. You're going to have to make this character more Chinese, you know, because she had some producers on both sides of the pond. So it's a pretty fascinating movie. It just doesn't, it, it just kind of like, it just is in some ways. It's not super like plot driven or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just these, this family spending three days together. A hangout movie. Sort of with this big lie that's just kind of looming over all of them. What about you? I don't know if we talked about this at one point recently, but I've been <laughs> replaying Doom <laughs> since uh, it came out on my Switch, which has been fun. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Got me thinking, you know, I know we've been talking about doing another video game show. I think that would be a good one. Maybe we'll take our time yeah. and get through it. Because you had never played no. much of it. And it's funny. I think I had mentioned to you, I was like, oh, that's the one with the Nazis. And you were like, no, that's Wolfenstein. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, the other day I was talking to my brother and I was mentioning to him, I was like, oh, uh, we might do an episode on Doom because Tony really likes it and I, I've never played it. He's like, oh, that's the one with the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Your brother plays video games more he than does. you. He does, I would yeah. expect more from him. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Ooh. Yeah, and I realized that I, now that I'm playing through it that I didn't ever really play through it as a kid without cheating. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> How? God mode. Oh, uh, is, you know, is it like codes or something? Loaded to bear. Oh. Uh, you clip through walls so you don't have to like find any of the keys. You can just walk through doors and okay. stuff. Okay. But it's still fun. Like the the the, the sort of the uh-huh. basic elements of the game still work. So, oh. uh, yeah. Oh, I've been listening to a lot of Tool since uh, they, they finally they put their music they released all their music services. on streaming. Okay. How's that going? I've been enjoying it. Yeah. yeah. Did you listen to them before? I did. I never really took a big dive into their last two records. Yeah. I've never really listened to Tool. Yeah. I know the singles, but I don't think I've ever listened to an album. I saw a Perfect Circle live, not intentionally. They opened up for Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, I think, you know, I think knowing your interest in in Prague yeah. uh, and that kind of stuff, I think it's worth taking a look. Sure. Or a listen, as sure. it were. Future episode? Possibly. Okay. Yeah. They have a new album coming out soon, right? Yeah. Oh. And actually... um. They released a new single, first new material in um, 13 years. So that's just the beginning of this 10-minute new song, and I wanted to play it because it came up, and I was like, oh my god. That it's, noise sounds pretty familiar. It's the camera from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is what we're talking about today. Wow. <laughs> what a road to get there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. It was all worth it. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, um, when we decided to do Horror Month, um, when we were choosing uh, what to cover for the show, you know, we were cho- choosing between different mediums. And we went back to the very beginning 
when we were developing the show. And one of the very first things that you had mentioned that you had never seen to me was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was, I, it's one of my favorites. I, I love horror movies. Uh, I love the horror genre. Uh, and I just, I think this movie is one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, so I was so excited when you were like, I've never seen this. I'm like, we get to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, I can't wait to just get in and see, hear what you thought of it and what your experience was like. And, and I know you watched it with Sandra and hear her, what she thought of it and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I really have no excuse here. I saw the remake when that came out in 2003 or four, whenever that was, uh, with Jessica Biel and Arlie Ermey. And I, I really remember nothing outside of the, the premise. So, I, you know, I, I kind of knew what I was getting myself into with this, but I don't know why I never sought out the original because sort of piggybacking off of the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they remade a bunch of old Wes Craven movies in the, around the same time. A lot of the 80s slasher icons like Freddy and Jason were getting remakes. And those always sort of instigated uh, a go back to the source moment. Uh, and I was in college at the time. So, you know, my roommates and I would we would go watch the remake and then we'd go to a video store and get the original one. And for some reason, we just never did that with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I know Leatherface because, you know, he's sort of, um, I don't know, I guess if there's a hierarchy of, of horror movie icons, he's he's certainly up there, you yeah. know, with the, Fre- with the Freddies and the Jasons of the world, mm-hmm. the Mike Myerses. <laughs> um, yeah, this is great. This is really good. I really, really liked it. <laughs> it's funny because before when we decided to do this, I was nervous. And I told you, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about this because I, I don't know what will happen if you don't like this movie. <laughs> and and like, obviously, like if you didn't like the movie, it'd be fine. I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, cast any judgments. But but, you know, I it's hard when you love something deeply and you share it. You almost feel vulnerable. You open yourself up. Um, I think when you are as passionate about something and share it with somebody and that's not yeah, reciprocated, exactly. that's, a, that's a moment of vulnerability. Now, do you ever get, I, I, I kind of call this like movie empathy, when you're, if you're watching something with someone and you can clearly tell yes. without them saying something that they're not into it. 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's just like suddenly like it could be your favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Say it's a, an episode of your favorite TV show. It's 22 minutes long, and you just know, and it feels like hours. Yeah. It's, just, it's the most yeah. uncomfortable thing. I, I A few years back, um, I think it was around uh, New Year's, and Meg kept asking me to read uh, The Little Prince. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's her, like one of her favorite books. And so I was like, sure, I'll read your favorite book. You watch one of my favorite movies, uh, and that's Brazil by uh, Terry Gilliam. And she's like, all right, deal. So I read the book in a day. It's a, it's a short book. Uh, and so at night comes, I'm like, all right, here we go. We're going to watch this. Fired it up. And she lasted maybe like 10 minutes. And she's like, I, I can't do this. And I was just devastated. I was like, how could you do this to me? Uh, she couldn't get back past some of the 80s affectations. Uh, she has weird hangups. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I understand completely what you're saying. But yeah, I, I was I was nervous that you weren't going to like it. So I'm, I'm really excited that you, you took to it. Yeah. So so walk me through it. Why? Why is this such an important movie for you? For me or, or just in general? Let's start with you. I, I don't know. I really honestly, I don't remember the first time I saw this. I really don't. Uh, I know there was a period probably the late 90s, early 2000s, where some friends and I would go to 
the video store, we were looking to fill in our pop culture blind spots, you know, movies that were considered, I guess, part of the canon. Uh, so during this period, I watched things like 2001, Clockwork Orange, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Was... The only three movies you ever need to see. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> and Texas Chainsaw Massacre was, was a part of that. So I don't remember specifically when I watched it the first time, but I've just, it's a movie I frequently revisit. I, I also had a friend that when he graduated college worked for McFarland Toys for a while and he, oh, cool. he was part of, uh, I know he worked on the, the bigger Texas Chainsaw Massacre figure. Uh, so I remember him kind of sculpting that. Those were great. Yeah, they were really cool. Did you ever have any of those? Um, I think so. I had a bunch of McFarlane toys. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember specifically if, he ha- if I had any of the horror ones. Mm-hmm. I think I had I had Edward Scissorhands was part of that line. Um, I had Ash and Evil Ash. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they were great. Yeah. The Terminator ones they put out were pretty cool. Yeah, they were all really cool. So I think all those things kind of... Uh, it's just something that's just lodged in my brain. You know, like I don't have any origin for it. It's just there. Sure. Uh, but rewatching it uh, for this episode, I was just just so struck by so much of the imagery and the brutality and just the weirdness uh, and the specificity of some of the choices. Like it's just a, it's a strange movie and it has a lot of character to it. Um and so when you see things like the remake and it's all sanded down and it's just, you know, volume and gore cranked to 11, you understand why it doesn't work. Right. I think going into this, I was surprised by the humor that was woven through it. I was surprised that the first time they approached the house that it didn't look as terrifying on the outside because the remake is just such this dialed up grime on yeah. everything. It just overdoes it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no there's no subtlety. Yeah. So and and you know, not the not that the, the kills in this are necessarily subtle, but they are surprising when they happen. Yeah. And you, you don't get the sense that you're, you know, you you know, obviously I know because history has proven that there these kids are walking into a trap, <laughs> but. Um, it doesn't telegraph it necessarily. No, not at all. It's eerie, but it's not like the remake may as well say murder house, <laughs> you know, as on the, yeah. on the side yeah. of the mailbox. It came about at a time when horror was changing pretty rapidly. You had a number of different really big, important movies that were coming around right around this time uh, with Psycho, The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, uh, Last House on the Left. And these were all they were all doing something new, whether it was inventing the slasher genre with Psycho, although, you know, people might quibble because there are a few scattered movies before that with with that, uh, with, I guess, what you'd call, consider slashers, but, you know, for for all intents and purposes. Uh, popularized it. Popularized it. And then you had more of the psychological uh, aspect with Rosemary's Baby, um, the religious element which is brought into the exorcist and and just the the grime and art houseness of last house on the left so it was all kind of pointing in this direction and things were drastically changing and at the time <clears throat> there's also a lot of you know horror hammer hammer films uh and that was a 
British company, for people that don't know, um, and they were kind of taking all the old Universal monsters and kind of updating them. And they had limited sets, and they reused the sets for a lot of the movies. And now, I love these movies. I think they're really inventive and a lot of fun, but it felt like it was from a different time. Uh, they were upping the gore and the TNA a little. Um, sure, yeah. I think I remember uh, me and a friend when we were, you know, probably like nine or ten or so, stumbling on one of the Hammer Dracula movies. Yeah. And um, it was whatever bit we caught was so silly that, like, we were just enamored by it. All these newer movies were just doing something radically different. And I think a lot of it was borrowing from a European cinema, especially something like Last House on the Left, which is literally just taken from The Virgin Spring by Ingmar Bergman. Uh, so he had seen this Bergman film, uh, Wes Craven directed, it, wrote and directed Last House on the Left. And he had seen um, The Virgin Spring and was essentially like, oh, I, I, I can do something like this and, and did it on the cheap. And, and it was uh, caused a big sensation because... Uh, it's exploitative and over the top and it, it kind of rubs your face in it. And and so along comes Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it's in that vein, but it, it it's doing something different. Uh, and I think the biggest distinction between this and Last House is that this movie is just absolutely gorgeous to look at. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. There were some shots in this that were genuinely stunning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the 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 fluidity of of the camera moves some really lovely lens flaring even like wide distorted shots were just like it all was clearly something done down and dirty but it was evident that it was done by someone who was using their limited resources as efficiently and to yeah. the best of their ability cuz i mean i i honestly wasn't expecting to have that takeaway from from this film so let's get a little bit into the origins of the movie because it's kind of crazy. So the movie was filmed in Texas, and there were these local. There's a local politician, and then a local. Uh, I think he was a former politician that got into like tech, uh, and they were both wealthy. And one of them uh, was really attracted to Marilyn Burns, and she's the lead actress, ostensibly the lead actress, I guess. She plays Sally in the movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and so she was like a struggling actress and he had a lot of money. So he kind of set up a fund through the state in order to, to make movies. Cause you know, Hollywood was really big, uh, early seventies making a lot of money. So they were kind of like, well, we can bring some of this here to Texas. So they wanted to fund their own movie, but he kind of did it all under the guise to get in her pants. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Super gross. And he stole money from the state. Like they, they kind of took money from the state in order to pay for it. And the initial budget for this movie was $60,000, which is just super, super low budget. Um, but um, he basically met up with Kim Henkel, and he was the writer of, well, co-writer. And uh, Henkel was just like, I wrote this script uh, with my friend Toby Hooper. And Hooper had been doing some documentary work, and he was filming like a, an actual surgery. And he had no problems filming it. And I guess it was this really squeamish, kind of bloody, pretty gross surgery. And he had no problems. He looked at the footage and it repulsed him. And he realized at that moment that it was his angle from filming it to actually looking at what he had shot. And that's the change. And he realized in that moment, something kind of clicked. He's just like, huh, it's how you shoot the violence. It's how you shoot the gore. Um, and he wanted to do something 
kind of sensationalistic because he figured that that was, could be a hook for him. So he co-wrote this script with Kim Henkel and, and through these producers and these getting the money from the state, uh, they, they started to make the movie. And, and all the actors were mostly out-of-work actors, people around Texas. Uh, and they filmed it in Texas in the summer, and it was super, super hot. And you could see that on, like, every frame of the movie. Like, these actors. Oh, yeah, just, it's a sweaty film. It's just drenched. It's gross. It's, like, one of the stickiest-looking movies I think ever made. Um, you know, let's let's get into the movie. Let's We're going to break it down, and we're going to talk a lot about some of the choices, the kills, because that's what you talk about when you talk about horror movies, mm-hmm. uh, the gore, and the cinematography. It opens with some uh, some narration. And it says that this is a true story. Right, which is such a like a, a tried and true Hollywood fake out. Yeah, it's funny because the other day Meg was just like, when I told her we were doing this, she's like, oh, that is based on a true story, right? I'm like, no. No, Fargo did it. Yeah. It's funny because it says that the murders took place in the summer of 1973, but that's when the movie was filmed. So if you paid attention, you, it couldn't possibly be true. Um, but And there are all these like apocryphal stories about what inspired the movie. Yeah, I mean, things I had read is, I mean, and obviously Ed Gein, mm-hmm. the serial killer, is um, often looked at as, as a, a big touchstone for where yeah. the idea of Leatherface came from. Which is funny because I was just listening to the commentary track before I came here. And Toby... <laughs> I was just having dinner with Ed Gein. <laughs> <laughs> I was just having dinner. We were eating some people. Uh, <laughs> so so I was just listening to the commentary track and Toby Hooper was just like, yeah, I've I discovered Ed Gein after the fact. So, right. but again, like he said that it was Ed Gein. So, who knows the true story? It's right. like Lucas, like George mm-hmm. Lucas, how he changes the story about a lot of the origins of the various different ep- um, episodes in sure. Star Wars. Um, but yeah, Ed Gein. He he also said that it's based off of Watergate. Which... Well, no, I think I think there's something to that. I, throughout the film, there are. Um, you know, radio newscasts sort of in the background. Yeah. They're all horrible. And I think when he talks about Watergate, he's, he's talking about, you know, the, the, the sort of the constant stream of bad news coming, whether it's from Watergate, Vietnam, um, riots, protesting. You know, I think there is sort of a cultural anxiety that hangs over the film. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of things early on, this is very psychedelic. It's very Easy Riders, the slasher movie. You know what I mean? For sure. And I think I think this is this the timeline matches that. I mean, that this is sort of uh, the nation is sort of starting to experience the hangover of the late sixties. Yeah. Um, and this sort of <laughs> grotesquery of a movie uh, lends itself to that really well. So I I buy the Watergate angle there. Oh, and so so we didn't mention that the opening narration is done by John Larroquette. <laughs> right. Yeah. And apparently Hooper asked him to, he wanted him to sound like Orson Welles, which I- I don't think he did a good job. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> it's a, he, he does, he's a fine narrator. Yeah. He's, a, he's not a good Orson Welles impersonator. Yeah. Um, but right after that, we see, we hear the noise that- um, Tony had played earlier. That, well, yeah, that, that, that's part of the tool. It's like a version of that. Yeah, noise. yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's. I think it's supposed to almost be like flashbulbs. Sort. Yeah, of. I think that that's definitely what it is. Because even even in the remake, it they, doesn't sound like flashbulbs. They bulbs, use it so. in the context of, you know, that camera showing yeah, yeah. quick flashes of grisly yeah. imagery. And that's what it opens. It's all darkness with these flashes of these decaying bodies. Mm-hmm. And we found out find out through like this radio narration that. Um, the local cemetery um, has been um, 
you know, there's been some grave robbing and they've taken these bodies and sort of made this weird art installation. Yeah, it. the camera's panning back and it's this really, really wide shot of this grotesque statue of body parts. It's really like a, it's it's a scene that launched a thousand metal covers, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of jarring because you don't really know what it is. You don't no. know what to make of it. But right after that, we meet our 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 unlucky our mystery gang yeah i guess you could call it the mystery gang yeah there's five teenagers or late teens early Mm -hmm. 20s traveling in a van together Mm -hmm. a couple of them were they're going to see if any of their family graves have been disturbed yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so we have sally um yeah please refresh my memory because when it comes to horror movies and people's names we have sally uh her boyfriend jerry well, I don't know if she's definitely he's definitely her boyfriend, but they insinuate that he is. Uh, Kirk uh, and Pam, and they're a couple. Mm-hmm. And then Sally's brother, which is Franklin, and Franklin is in a wheelchair. That's kind of important because uh, the rest of the game kind of like, they kind of pick on him because of it in a way. He almost feels like a burden to them. Yeah. We, we kind of start with them, um, with Pam reading some astrology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of funny, but it, it it sets everything up. Like the first 10 minutes really is like this portent for everything that's going to happen. We see the grave. They talk about a slaughterhouse and how the slaughterhouses change how, from the way they used to kill them to now they just have these metal rods that kind of go through the skull and, and kill them right away. Right. Um, yeah, they're, they're, no one's swinging a hammer anymore. Yeah, and they get to the cemetery and because they, they want to make sure that uh, Sally and Franklin's uh, grandfather's grave was not dug up and there's an old man there and he's kind of like you know giving these warning signs and these are all things that have become super tropey like this is like horror movie 101 but sure. b- before this it really wasn't yeah. like it's all sort of established this template and we've seen this like so many times so after the cemetery they pick up the hitchhiker yeah and this is another element that really feeds into that um, counterculture easy rider vibe so as you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the characters is reading astrology. The whole intro sequence is very trippy and very psychedelic. And then they pick up this crazed hitchhiker who who looks kind of like Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah, he's crazy. He's got like a birthmark. Mm-hmm. Or it looks like a birthmark. He's got it's long hair say. and he's just like, he's dressed like a like a scary hippie. Yeah. He's clearly not well, and they let him in the van. <laughs> yeah, and he starts kind of taunting them. Mm-hmm. But it, the first thing he says to them is, my family has always been in meat. He's basically up implying that they've all worked in the slaughterhouse, yep. um, but have been laid off. And, and Franklin replies with, uh, you know, a whole family of Draculas. That's how, how weird and crazy this guy is. Oh, shit. Yeah. I forgot about that line. Then <laughs> that kind of comes back into play later on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but another thing that happens, too, is he shows them some photos. Uh, and he, and he, says, he says right at the beginning, I was the killer. <laughs> uh, but never seeing this before, I mean, obviously this guy is fucked up. And, and as a viewer, first-time viewer, you know it. he's probably no good. But he act, comes out and he just yeah. says, I was the killer. Uh, but then he cuts himself. He takes Franklin's picture. He asks him to pay $2 for it. They all got kind of freaked out. He burns the picture in front of them mm-hmm. on like some tinfoil. Yeah, in in the van. He like lights a fire. Yeah. <laughs> then he cuts Franklin and then hops out of the van. Does he hop out or do they throw him out? I think they throw uh, Well, they want him out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he kind of knowingly goes out. But right after this moment, they're all kind of coming, you know, 
trying to get a, a, a little composure. And Pam continues to read the astrology book, and she says this in regard to Sally's astrology. She says, there are moments when we cannot believe that what is happening is really true. Pinch yourself, and you may find out that it is. And, and you know, obviously, so this whole, the first 20 minutes really are just saying, like, you guys are fucked. Yeah. Like, you're so fucked. Yeah, and then, like, uh, the, the long-winded uh, definition and the praises of head cheese. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, the idea of eating something so disgusting, and it's just... Yeah, setting setting the table for the the horror. So, so that was actually the the when they presented the script to the to the to the money people. Yeah, that was the name of the working title. It was head head cheese. cheese? Yeah, they hated that. They changed it to Leatherface, uh, and and you know Leatherface himself uh, is, is played by uh, Gunnar Hansen. He said he was disappointed to find out that they not only called it Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but spelled it incorrectly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because the chainsaw is two words. So right after this, they show up at the gas station. Gas station's out of gas. Classic. Yep. Classic horror and, movie trope. And, and we meet the 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 owner of the gas station and he as another kind of horror trope of warning these kids. And they're like, uh, we're going to look for this house. Don't so, want to go down the old Franklin place. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They're looking for Sally and Franklin's uh the house that they used to live in. Their their grandparents' house, right? Yeah, but they, they imply that they've kind of spent a lot of time mm-hmm. there. And again, the attendant's just like, mm, I don't know about that, guys. Um, and that attendant is important because we see him again later. Uh, so they get to the house and they're exploring it. It's like this old dilapidated house. It's falling apart. There's actual spiders crawling around everywhere. And mm-hmm. um, Franklin gets frustrated because they all go up to the second floor and he kind of whines while he's down on the bottom floor. But then they all kind of split up and go their own ways. Kirk and Pam decide that they're going to look for like a little... Uh, There's a swimming hole Like or a something. swimming hole, yeah. Uh, and as they're looking for it, it's just all dried up. This is when they start going towards a nearby house because they don't have anything to do. They're out of gas. They're just kind of exploring. And they come upon like this junkyard and it's like a graveyard. Uh, and there's like lots of like random tchotchkes and things hanging and it, it's just really gross. Yeah. Uh, but it's just a, a great kind of like um, art like art direction because everything is just so well designed and, and, uh, uh, and, and kind of thought out. Right. And, and, and then that became a trope that any, yeah. any movie that had um, a, a property that was unkempt to a certain degree with a lot of like random knickknacks. The more rust, the better. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that sort of became like the the template. Sure. Um, you know, we we talked about that X Files episode, Home, a few episodes back. Borrows heavily. From yeah, this. absolutely. Yeah. And that was sort of what I was. You know, that was another piece of pop culture that informed my expectations here. Yeah. So Pam and Kirk come across this house, and then um, Kirk Kirk finds a little tooth, and he gives it to Pam, and kind of freaks her out. Yeah. But let's. Let's talk about the house a bit because, you know, all those knickknacks and stuff and, you know, we sort of registered as odd and it became this larger trope to really telegraph that this is where this is where the the brutality is going to happen. I mean, they're walking through a field of sunflowers. The house seems relatively well painted and well maintained on the outside. Sure. And I think that, you know, talking about the you know, the, the copy of the copy is always inferior. I think by the time we get to the early 2000s and these types of movies, whether they're remakes or not, 
they're just dripping with grime and just nastiness um and none of it uh it, it just doesn't work the same way this feels like the type of home of someone that is probably out of work yeah from the outside it doesn't look like you know in Rhode Island, you could drive by a lot of places that look like this, mm-hmm. especially out. Yeah, out in the, you know, out in the more rural areas. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't look like what you'd now consider to be. It didn't look like a bunch of psychos lived there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. Until Kirk decides to go into the house, Pam decides to stay outside, and he, he can see some skulls on the wall in the distance. It's like a kind of like a, it's like a red wall. Yeah, it and it's crazy. Uh, it, Camera kind of slows down a bit, lingers, and then Leatherface just walks out, slow zoom, hits Kirk with a mallet. Yeah. It, it's so quick. Like, it just comes out of nowhere. It's and, and all this is silent. Like, there's no audio over all that. And that's what I love about just it. Womp. Yeah, it's not like, it doesn't rub your face in the violence at all. He just comes out, bam, hits him in the head down. He's writhing on the floor. Hits him again, right? Hits him one more time, finishes him off. Drags the body, shuts the door. That's it. And it's all done in like a couple of shots. Yeah. It's quick. And that, that door slam is yeah. great. And then as soon as he hits the door, this is the first time in the movie we hear like music, aside from the very, very, very opening. And it's like ominous tone. It's a lot of textures. There's no real music music. It's mostly just kind of like textural soundscape stuff. Uh, and a lot of it was done by Toby Hooper himself. Right after this is one of the greatest shots of the movie. And it's so, it's so amazing. So wide angle lens, really low to the ground, un, like behind a swing. You could see the house off in the distance. And Pam is swinging on the swing, decides to go investigate. As she stands up, the camera dollies in from underneath the swing, follows her. And like the house gets bigger as she's walking towards it and it angles upwards Mm -hmm. and she has this halter top. So you can't like it doesn't look like she's she's wearing a shirt because of the halter top goes so low. So you can just see like these bright red shorts and this long hair and then the house and then the house gets bigger and like engulfing her. It's just it's an iconic shot. When Hooper passed away, that that shot was everywhere. People were sharing it because it's just such a brilliant moment. And and on the commentary, they talk about how they had to fight for that shot with the the money people. They were just like, no, they got coverage that they needed for the scene. And and the director of photography, his name is Daniel Pearl. He, I guess he approached Hooper. He's like, I have this idea. So they kind of had like a flatbed to put the camera on. Mm-hmm. And he kind of laid down on it and had to push it. And they were just like, no, this is unnecessary. And they're like, no, this is so necessary. Uh, and it is one of the coolest shots of the movie. Like, why did they think it was unnecessary? Did they think it was gratuitous? Because it is sort of like a, you know, to your point, um, you know, it doesn't look like she's wearing much. It is a, a low shot. Sure. It is kind of, you know, it does sort of frame her frame her ass pretty prominently in the, in the sure. frame at a point as she's walking up the steps. But I also don't think her outfit is out of character for the 70s. No, I don't think so either. And I also think that part of what makes the shot so great is that that house is looming and right. it gets bigger and the way she's framed, it is another portent of mm-hmm. what's about oh, to sure. happen to her. Uh, I it, was just curious if you had, if there was any reasoning why, I think or if they the just reasoning, thought it was like, didn't, if it was boring or I think it didn't reason, add anything to it. I think because they were, you know, this was shot in four weeks. They were shooting really long days. It was super fucking hot. They were kind of miserable. Their budget was low. They're going over budget. They had already gotten the coverage. So when 
an artist comes to the money man and is just like, hey, we have this really cool idea. They're going to be like, why do you need that? You already got what you need. Um, and, and and this is one of the most iconic shots in, in, in horror history. Uh, I, okay. I, I had missed that when you said that they had already done everything and then mm-hmm. had that idea to go back. And there are a lot of low angle shots in this movie. Like the whole movie is kind of, not the whole movie, but a lot of it is done with kind of low angle, wide angle lenses. Uh, and it kind of gives a sense of otherworldliness to to these kind of yeah. s- scenes and the, these settings. Yeah, again, it, it lends to that that trippy visual aesthetic. Yeah. And as Pam goes back into the house to look for Kirk, she stumbles in this other room, and it's just like feathers all over the floor, and there's a chicken in a cage. Laughing at her almost, yeah. the way it's clucking. There's like weird skeletons, almost like a full human skeleton. Mm-hmm. And like a, almost like a couch yeah, made out of furniture made out of yeah. bones and skin. It's so cool. It's yeah. just like really gnarly. And she's starting to freak out. <laughs> On the commentary track, they refer to this as the rental bones. <laughs> because they had to rent them. They they don't own bones. Right. You know? So for it's just I just thought it was like a weird term to think of. Like when you're working on a movie, you're just like, oh, we need the rental bones. <laughs> so uh, some of it was like uh, some of the teeth and stuff were on loan from, I guess, Hooper's dentist or something like that. So they were actual teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. gross. Yeah. So, so great. <laughs> um, so it's just another strange sort of thing. And it kind of like harkens back to the beginning where it almost looks like an art installation. Some of these skeletal things like someone is fucking around and making things yeah. with decaying um, s- corpses. Yeah. Um, so then all of a sudden Leatherface shows up again. Uh, just completely like he pops up super quick again finds Pam drags her into the other room throws her on a meat hook and she's just dangling there and watches as he takes a chainsaw to Kirk's head and what's interesting uh, is and it's really it's really kind of funny that so there's not like a I was expecting like a, a geyser of blood and a lot of like splatter yeah there wasn't any no Toby Hooper thought that if he didn't do stuff like that, he'd be able to get a PG rating. He said he was talking to the MPA the whole time. Yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, as long as there's not a lot of blood shown, you should be fine. So there's really not a lot of blood in the movie. No, but it's full of fucked up looking stuff. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It is strange to think that he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a PG rating. There was no PG-13 at the time, obviously. And it it ended up getting, was it, did it get an X? It got an R, but, you know, after it was released... it had tr- they had trouble finding distribution first, mm-hmm. and then after it was released, you know, it got pulled from a lot of theaters because it was controversial. People yeah, were like this is just this is too much. Right. I mean, this was a, a this was an era where, you know, this was banned in certain countries. Oh yeah, I can't. Like, when was the last time a film was banned in Australia? <laughs> um, but that happened all the time with this kind of stuff, and yeah. now like. You know, doesn't matter. Well, you know, the the landscape's different now. A lot of yeah. horror movies direct to video, and oh yeah, definitely. Know, don't have to worry about somebody putting it up in a theater or anything. But no, yeah, I can't like that. I, I feel like that whole era, like a movie, has to be complete filth at this point for someone to be like, we're not going to screen that anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the other great thing about the end of the scene is like you know, as as Leatherface is has a chainsaw to Kirk's head. And they don't show anything. 
you mostly see Pam's reaction. It cuts to a windmill outside. It's mm-hmm. backlit by the sun, and the sun is like peeking through. There's this amazing lens flare, and it's so peaceful. And you hear this faint scream in the background. It's just so great because the whole movie, it's just not like it doesn't rub your face in anything. And there's so, so uh, it, a lot of it is like, it's, it's gorgeous. It's so strange to think of something that is so sunlit and with, you know, golden hour, backlit, dappled lighting, uh, all done uh, for a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and. Uh, part of the horror, you know, with not necessarily showing it, despite there being all of these really graphic images, you know, that room full of bones and, you know, flesh pulled out to make a love seat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and not to say that there are plot holes necessarily, but they just give you enough. Oh, and yeah. your imagination really runs the fuck wild because, like, if this is what they're showing us, like, what else have these creeps done? Oh, for sure. Yeah. This movie doesn't explain anything. It's just kind of like presenting this moment in time mm-hmm. these, these, that this bad shit happened to these people. Yeah. I mean, and you had to have been at it for a long time to have such a, a lovely matching living room set. <laughs> um, so the, the movie was shot on 16 millimeter and it was blown up to 35 millimeter. But what's interesting about the look of this, and we've been talking a lot about the sun they shot a lot of golden hour, um, and it, it uses a lot of uh, natural available light. Uh, but the film stock was rated at um, 25, which is super, super low. Well, what does that mean? That means, so when you have your ratings for your for film stock, the higher it goes, the more light uh, it can take in, which means that, um, you know, that's usually higher film stocks are for things like nighttime stuff mm-hmm. or interior stuff with uh, with not a lot of light. Uh, and But you'll notice with things that are higher film stock that they're really grainy, like right. super noisy. But this was rated at 25. So this is a really clean movie, uh, uh, at least the film grade. The film grain is. Um, and so, right. the, so, so like the digital analog would be like if you take a photo with your phone at night. Yeah. And it's got that that grit to it sure that little you know it's just that that's that's what we're talking about yeah that exactly kind of it's noise and yeah. like if you've seen any old movie you've seen film grain obviously like there's a massive debate that we could have forever about the difference between film noise and digital noise and why film noise is preferable but that's right. not what this episode is i'm just trying to give context yes. here exactly um so but also because of that they have to shoot Everything has like a, a pretty big depth of field, um, so everything is kind of in focus. But everything is kind of, you know, they're using a lot of sun in order to light everything. They didn't have a lot of practical lights for the night scenes, um, but they use them sparingly, uh, and they they use them to augment like things like headlights from a from from a van mm-hmm. or flashlights. So right after the scene, Jerry goes off to look for everybody. Oh, yeah. And there's that shot of him walking into the sunset. Oh, yeah. It's pretty great. Uh, uh, a lot of backlit kind of like he's like in shadow. kind mm-hmm. of, uh, And it follows him, too. It's really great. Um, and then he finds the room in the house with the empty meat hook. And he hears this kind of like banging. And you look over and there's like a meat fridge. <laughs> and he opens it and Pam just pops out. <laughs> It's terrifying. It is It is really gross. It's really cool. And then Leatherface fucking shows up again, and he hits Jerry. And it's just like 
every time Leatherface shows up, it's quick, abrupt, and then that guy is fucking dead. And if, <laughs> but th- if you think about the new version, the remake, um, they torture all these people. Like, they spend forever. But in this old movie, he, they just disperse with everyone just super quickly. It is very explicit when you have her being placed on the meat hook and then you yeah. have him carving into sure. into the other guy. But it's very brief. Right, but then to have another character find that room and there's no body on the table and there's no body on the hook, that's terrifying. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's so much more satisfying a scare than yeah. torture porn shit. And, and when Pam pops out of the meat fridge, she's dead. Like she shouldn't pop out of the meat fridge, but it works because right. it's just so... Like you're in the moment. You're like, what the? What's gonna happen? And she just pops out, almost like this little like a jack in the box. Yeah, exactly. And right after this, Jerry's kind of laying there dead, and it kind of lingers on Leatherface, and he's kind of freaking out. Like he's like, it, it's weird. It almost like it does. I don't know if he regrets what's happening, but he's freaking out. He's he's unsure of it, and he goes up to the window, and like the lun- lights peeking through the window, and we get a good close up of his face for yeah, the first time. Yeah, he's got gross teeth, and like just the, like the yeah. cracked like and, slits in his mask. Yeah, and he's just like grunting and making weird noises, but he doesn't look happy. No, he looks sad and just, yeah, and like the impression you get thinking about it after seeing the rest of the movie is. You're like, oh, he's worried that somebody's gonna get mad at him for killing too many people. <laughs> we can't, we can't use all these bodies, Leatherface. Where are we gonna keep them? <laughs> and he's that almost, Jerry's gonna spoil. He's. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk is not on the keto diet. Uh, <laughs> he's almost contemplative in this moment. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, so after we get this, like quiet contemplative moment with Leatherface where he's pondering whether or not he wants to enroll in college or get a job in the financial field. Sure. Or, you know, if he could maybe sell off some of that extra human meat at the farmer's market. I bet you he can open a nice art gallery in Soho. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. I think he could have gone to RISD. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Uh, So it cuts to the moon and we get a great shot of the van. Uh, with its headlights turned on, pointed right towards the camera, and Franklin is in between the two lights. It's kind of framing him by backlighting him. It, this movie uses a lot of backlighting, mm-hmm. uh, but it looks nice. Yeah, you know, this. it was very blue. Yeah. And uh, if the timelines didn't overlap in ways that end up debunking this theory, like it feels very much like that scene in Jaws when... Uh, Brody and Hooper are out on the boat mm-hmm. early on looking looking for the, the boat that had gone missing. Sure. And it, it feels like that. It feels, you know, because it's, it's Franklin and uh, Sally. Sally sort of on the verge of discovering. And I, I was like, in you know, between all the lens flare and stuff and then, you know, later Toby Hooper and Spielberg worked together on Poltergeist. Yeah. I was like, did he, did he see this and, and borrow it? But like, it was one of those things where sure. like, you know, Concurrently, just, yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, the actress and the actor that played Sally and Franklin um, did not get along. So uh, that shows on screen. <laughs> they're they're playing brother and sister, and and um, you know she wants to go looking for everyone, and she's asking Franklin for the flashlight, and Fla- Franklin's just like, I need to come with you, because he's kind of freaking out now. And she just doesn't want to hear it. So she's like, I'm gonna just going to take off without you and without the flashlight. And he's like, no, I got to go with you. I got to go with you. So then she's pushing him through the woods, 
on his wheelchair. Well, they they go because they don't have keys. They don't have keys because one of the other guys left with the keys. Yeah. Uh, Leatherface again pops out of the darkness, lit by the flashlight, chainsaws the shit out of Franklin. This is probably the most explicit. Yeah. Kill. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. he just drives that thing into his gut repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but because it's so dark, you don't really see much. Right. Um, and Sally takes off. She's running, and um, Leatherface is in, like, hot pursuit. Uh, and then they kind of chase through the woods. They said uh, um, uh, on the commentary track how they had, like, only 40 feet of dolly track. So a lot of these nighttime chase scenes, they would just go down the track and chase them and get the shot, and then they turn around and <laughs> to the other side. It's so dark you can't really tell. Yeah. They're, they're sort of he's chasing her through like a like a tangle of of dried yeah. overgrowth and stuff. And there's one shot, and I don't know if it's here or in another part where he's chasing her, and there's no way they could have planned it. It's just a happy accident. But she runs into the woods and Leatherface is in pursuit and takes a wide arc and just the way the exhaust from the chainsaw trails, like if it had been animated, it obviously would have been deliberate sure because it just it adds so much momentum yeah and it's just it's so perfect it's just the way it follows the arc of his trajectory and he just races through the woods it's funny because Gunnar hansen said that he had to go out of his way to make wider paths because she was really slow she was a slow runner uh and he would easily catch up to her so he had to figure out these ways to to slow down or take alternate routes in order to not catch up to her um, for these chase sequences. Sure, but it all feeds into the character because oh, he totally. is this, just this massive, imposing thing. Yeah. So, it, you know, it just it works with him taking those big, wide turns. He's like a fucking tank. Yeah, he's huge, dude. Fills up a door frame. Yeah. But he ends up chasing her into the house. <laughs> 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 and she sees, like, these... She runs upstairs. Yep. And she's, it's like an attic room, so it's got like the pitched roof. Yeah, yeah. And there's like taxidermy person in there. It's like a skull. And then this old man in the corner who you think is dead, but we see him again later. Yeah, she thinks he's dead. Yeah. Um, she, is this when she jumps through the window? <laughs> yes. It's crazy. <laughs> so it's not. It's nuts that she jumps out of the two plate glass windows twice yeah. in this movie. Mm-hmm. But what I love about the scene is, aside from like that pitch roof and the framing, is like there's just one lamp on the floor that's casting these ominous shadows up on the on the ceiling, and it's just it's really gnarly looking. It's great. Jumps out the fucking window, and she escapes through the woods, ends up at the gas station where they were at earlier, where that old man was, who was basically saying like, "Hey, you should you should think twice about all this shit." Right, and then you know she's asking to use the phone. Do we don't have a phone? You know, he, he kind of leaves the room and there's this, it lingers because he's got a, when they stop for gas in the first place, they got some barbecue and she's sitting there horrified, cut up, bloody. He leaves the room and it just lingers on this oven yeah. full of meat. It's great. And you're like, oh no. There's no music. It's just the radio playing in the background. And it's just slow and it lingers for a while. It's like silence. She doesn't say anything. She's just looking around. And he comes back in, and she she gets the gist of what's going on, and he's like threatening to tie her up. Yeah, because he comes in with a he just like throws a rope down, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got like a bag and like a rope. He's like, yeah. "Don't worry, I'm not going to do anything." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she, she she finds like a knife, I think. Yeah. There's a knife. She tries to defend herself, 
hits her with a broom, knocks her out, ties her up, puts her in the in in the, the truck, goes back to shut the light off. Says the cost of electricity is enough to drive a man out of business. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of those little undertones about how this was a family that very much depended on the slaughterhouse and the economy of this small town. And mm-hmm. when the slaughterhouse changed directions or modernized, that these people, these working class people were out of jobs and that they were struggling. Um, so it's very interesting that it really doesn't delve into any of the victims, but it does delve into the murderers. And I think that that's fascinating. You know, we talked a lot in the suburbia episode about how Penelope Spheris didn't just empathize with her protagonist, but she gave the out-of-work, lower-middle-class characters who are ostensibly the villains, but she she gave them that backstory so that you could, if not empathize, at least understand where their, their frustration and their rage was coming from. And here they do the same thing where, you know, on the one hand, they're like, we're making an exploitation movie. Why invest the time and characters we're going to kill off anyway but they sort of put this this twisted spin on something that was happening to people in in parts of the country certain industries were moving on as technology was changing and people were being left behind because they either weren't willing to adapt or the the systems weren't in place for them to so instead of a uh you know, a low-budget art house melodrama. He turned <laughs> he turned it into a, a family of fucking cannibal rednecks. <laughs> I think that's what makes this movie so great. Is it's like, it's just on that edge of weird art house, sure, and genre exploitation. Right. If we went too far one way in either direction, it probably wouldn't work. You know. Yeah, or certainly wouldn't be as it wouldn't be as resonant as it has been over the decades. Yeah. And that, that a line like that, like the cost of electricity will drive a man out of business. At the one hand, given what the fuck is happening right now, oh, it's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> but then it's also got that the flip side is he's probably very concerned about his electric bill right now. <laughs> but it's got those those sort of grindhousey touchstones that you know show up in imitators or other t- similar types of exploitation or even uh, kind of send offs like. Um, like Grindhouse, yeah. the Tarantino Robert Rodriguez movie, or um, you know Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, their movies have tons of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he goes to take her back to the house. On the way, he stumbles upon the hitchhiker who's just kind of stumbling out of the woods. Gets out of the, the truck, and there's this beautiful shot, again backlit by the light of the truck, and he's kind of reprimanding him for going back to essentially the scene of the crime, the, the graveyard where they had dug up those bodies and made weird art installations. Yep. But it's beautiful because they're kicking up all sorts of, uh, of dirt just lit with the lights from the truck. Do you think he's mad that people would find out his identity from making all that art? by going? I think back he and... just doesn't want the attention. Do you think the hitchhiker was Banksy? Oh, maybe. Maybe. Maybe he yeah. was Banksy. <laughs> <laughs> That was bad. That was really terrible. <laughs> um, um, so, the, <laughs> how do we recover? Um, so they get back to the house, um, and and immediately it kind of establishes this family dynamic between the hitchhiker, this old man from the gas station, and Leatherface. And he's yelling at Leatherface. He's reprimanding him. He's like, you know, are you sure these people didn't get away? 
and and then he ends it with you ruined the door yeah yeah like that's his biggest concern your brother did to the door (laughs) yeah um so i I wanted to ask you what do you think so the old man from the gas station what do you think his relationship is to them do you know the answer to this or is there an answer to this yeah there is yeah Uh, i was just curious because i've always read it one way until i was reading stuff about it well listening to interviews now it seems like my answer is gonna be wrong i assumed it was their father it's their brother. It's their brother. Yeah. So I don't. I don't think it matters. Yeah. He do, definitely sort of has like he a, has a paternal role. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so they tie Sally to a chair. There's a lot of kind of framing because it's like the rooms aren't too big, so there's a lot of framing through the doors, and it's all very claustrophobic. And then they bring down Grandpa, mm-hmm. which is this the old dude that was up in the attic that initially you think is just a dead body, but no, it's another fucking old guy with like another kind of like skin mask on him. It's, yeah. It's did strange. He a, is, so was that supposed to be a mask or is he just that old? I don't know. Because I, I read it as like an effect, like uh, like, he's, like he's just super fucking old. Sure. And probably. I think it works either way. Yeah. Probably yeah. not eating as well as he should be for a man his age. No, especially because they cut Sally's finger. She starts to bleed. Yeah. And then they feed it to grandpa. Yeah. They put her finger in his mouth and he sucks the blood from her. They are actually family full of Draculas. Yes. She passes out. She wakes up. It's family dinner time. And this is like so, so strange. Yeah, this gets, it gets a lesser movie. This would have been so bad it's funny. But like the tone is just dead on. Oh, yeah. I think that's why this works so well because oh, yeah, they, it's riding a yeah, line. It's, they they completely understood that they were about to do something very weird. And I think that's a thing. Like everything I've read, the cast and, and, and Gunnar Hansen playing Leatherface saying that when we read the script, we were really alarmed with how funny a lot of it was, but how terrifying it was. And Toby Hooper said, he's like, yeah, anytime we'd rewrite or rework stuff, it was always about like, if it made us laugh, we knew we were in the right direction. For something so dark and, and macabre, it's just like, it's really strange. But at the same time, though, like how at this point we've seen so much carnage, how do you keep the audience on their toes? Because more gross stuff isn't necessarily going to shock no. them at this point. So, yeah, you have fucking Leatherface in a house dress with some woman's face on yeah, instead. So, so apparently the he wears three different masks. Each one represents um, a personality because he's empty inside. Right. And so that one is supposed to be grandma. Right. So uh, earlier it was just sort of like the Leatherface you're familiar with. It's, sure. It's just the creepy leather yeah. face mm-hmm. and kind of like the, the, the slaughterhouse smock. Yep. Now he uh, he's kind of like... Uh, like, you know, uh, Edith Bunker by way of Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so what's jarring in this moment is that they're just having these weird, petty arguments. Oh, yeah. And the hitchhiker is basically like, we got to finish her off. And the old man is kind of like, oh, man, no, do we really need to? And they keep referring to him. They keep saying to him, you're just the cook. Yeah. You're just a cook. And he says... You know, because he's—he it seems like he doesn't necessarily do all of the killing. Yeah, I get the—you get the impression that the hitchhiker maybe lures people to the house. Leatherface cuts him up. Yeah, and then by the time they get to the third brother, you know, it's just meat. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess uh, academically he knows what it is, but yeah. it's probably easier to deal with when it's not screaming at you or doesn't have—I um, don't know fingers anymore the old man says 
there are just some things you got to do. Don't mean you have to like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is this is this strange idea that he's being like, well, sometimes you have to cook people and murder people and you don't have to like those things, but no. you got to do them. Yeah. So the whole family, they're all kind of taunting Sally at this point. And again, you get more like the friction with the family and they're all talking about how grandpa's the best. He's the best killer there ever was. Oh yeah. Never had to swing a hammer twice. Yeah. <laughs> and then then they give him a, like a, a mallet and he can't hold it. He keeps it's dropping so, it. Like, it's so funny and so scary. It's so weird. And Sally's just screaming like freaking out this whole time. Shortly after this, she she wriggles free, jumps out of another window. <laughs> it's so absurd at this point. Um, <laughs> and, and so as she jumps out, this is like sunrise. All the light is golden. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and she's being chased by the hitchhiker and um, Leatherface. And she runs out into the road and the hitchhiker gets hit by a truck. And it's a pretty great shot. It looks pretty effective. Um, but yeah, so then then she gets into the truck. Yeah, and the but Leatherface goes up to the door and he's kind of like using the chainsaw on the door. And we didn't mention too that at this point he's in a third outfit. This mm-hmm. is like business Leatherface. Yeah. He, he's wearing like a tight like suit jacket. Yeah. Black, it's black and black pants and like a black tie and a white button up shirt. Yeah, yeah. With the, with the scary skin mask again. When Leatherface is attacking the, the truck, Sally hops out. The truck driver hops out too, throws a mallet at Leatherface. He falls and he cuts his leg. And in the process, we don't really see what happens to the trucker. I think he just kind of runs away. But another car comes by, turns around. Sally hops into the trunk. It's a truck. Yeah, the bed of the truck. Yep. Takes off and he's like, Leatherface is freaking out. Yeah. And this is like. This is the shot. It shows her in the truck. And she's just drenched in blood, and she just starts maniacally laughing because she got away. And it's one of the most cathartic movie endings of all time. It's just so great and triumphant, and she's just like, it's, and again, like this beautiful sun uh, lighting everything. And then it cuts to Leatherface and a backlit with the light peeking through, and he's just twirling just, around. Yeah. Just like a, like a kid. Just, like just... It yeah, it makes me think of like watching, you know, when my nieces and nephew were like really little and just like just twirling. Yeah, it's just fun to twirl. It's fun. He's just got a chainsaw. He's got somebody else's face on. It's funny how so many elements of this movie have been used by Terrence Malick for entirely different things. Like he's always shooting at golden hour. He's always shooting kind of like people like running their fingers through tall grass, and, and this is that except for Leatherface's twirling around with a chainsaw and you hear the chainsaw just as loud as possible you can get and then it just cuts to black credits and it's perfect like fucking perfect i love it i just love this movie i, I i'm just so excited because i think like i honestly think this movie's a masterpiece and I, I don't know if we've talked about anything that we thought was that i mean at least i feel it's perfect um i think there are limitations to it because it's so so low budget but i think based on those those limitations this you can't get much better than this yeah i mean my only my only quibble with it is that you know some of the uh the performances are a little grating sure but you know those people get killed pretty quick <laughs> so <laughs> yeah they don't have much to do they no, don't have, to have no no they lines. don't and you know i think while we were speaking to the the sort of the the virtue of giving this sort of suggested background to the villains and um 
you know, maybe not wasting time on, on people that are just going to get killed off. It does sort of, um, you know, there, there's not a lot to, I'm not saying you don't want any of them to survive necessarily, but you don't know who they are. Yeah. It's, it's tough to care about them. I think that's a thing that works for me though, because you don't need that. True. You know, like it, we've, we've talked in the past about how like plot is almost like, not that it's not important, but sometimes the emphasis on plot is so, so forced. Sure. And, and so without plot, you have character a lot of times, but like what we don't talk about is how, you know, film is a visual medium and that this is, you know, some gorgeous photography, great sound editing, and all these things come together to 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 make an experience. And and I think that's what's actually so great about yeah, this. It was an experience for sure. Yeah. I couldn't believe how <laughs> I couldn't believe how much fun I had watching this. Sure. Which again is it feels morbid to say out loud, but you know, I think these are what these movies are kind of for. You know, I, I, I'm I would prefer walking away from a horror movie being like, oh, that was terrifying and I had a blast. You know, the other option is that was terrifying and like I just feel icky and gross and I yeah. don't like I don't want to be right now. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, and again, like I think that ending is so cathartic. Sally isn't I wouldn't say she's like this fully realized, well-rounded character. but I don't think that's necessary because you've. In that moment when she's just like... Oh, you're relieved for her. Yeah. You were relieved for her. You're excited. And it shows how they earn that without actually making her three-dimensional necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that so impressive too. That, sure. That whole ending is just it's just perfect. Yeah. Um, so so what, did, what did Sandra think? She really liked it. She did? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, she... Uh, there are, are certain types of horror and gore that she's not on board for yeah there was um you know there is a a a tangible sort of layer of unreality between us and this movie something like uh like hereditary um i know it would not be her thing because i mean some supernatural stuff aside it's like it plays a lot of things very real it plays with emotions in a way that is really uncomfortable um that i really enjoyed but Knowing that, I was like, "You sit this one out. I don't think you're good. This is going to be your speed." But like a, a good slasher movie, she's generally on board for. Sure. Now, does does Meg like this movie? Um, I I don't know if like is the right term. Mm-hmm. It's funny when we started dating. One of the when you're getting familiar with each other, the, when you start dating, getting to know her, getting, getting to know all to about know, her. Yeah. <laughs> when she discovered that I loved horror movies, she the, one of the first things she said to me is like, "Oh." I went and saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the theater and I had to leave. I was like, well, was this like a a screening of the old movie? She's like, no, no, no. The remake. I'm like, well, have you seen the original? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I couldn't watch the remake. And I'm sure I was dismissive because, <laughs> you know, usually remakes, especially with horror, can be kind of trashy. Sure. So I was like, let's watch it together. She's like, oh, I don't think I can do that. I'm like, it'll be fine. Let's just watch it together. If you don't like it, we'll turn it off. So we watch it together and I kind of laughed at it the whole time. And I think that was a mo- breakthrough moment for her because she was like, oh, okay, I get this. I understand this now. And so ever since she she watches every so many horror movies with me. Um, whereas before she said she couldn't handle it. She left the theater. She thought it was just too much. Yeah. And now she she watches them every time. I inflicted them upon her. There's so many movies we watch together where I'm just like, I, I would like to watch this. 
and she she knows nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Goes in 100% cold. Knows the title. Not even sometimes on the way to the theater. She's like, what is this called again? You know? And that's a unique experience. Uh, I mean, that's not really possible for people like us that are just so invested. Right. And, and always reading and, and learning about new things. And um, so for her, sometimes she's like, oh, that was unique. That was great. I didn't know anything about that. And Sure. Um, but she's strange when it comes to violence. There's certain things she's just like, oh, yeah, that's gross. That's like, I remember we saw Logan in the theater. And that's PG-13. No, no, that's no that was R. R. You're right. Sorry. God, um, this is the most serious adult X-Men movie they ever made. Uh, Come on. <laughs> um, and he just stabbed so many people in the skull. And and she was so upset by it. But we saw Antichrist together at the cable car. This is old art house uh, theater in, in Rhode Island. And um, when she literally takes garden shears to her genitalia and then to... Willem Dafoe's penis, uh, Meg was just like, yeah, I didn't think that was that big of a deal. So I was just like, so I don't understand sometimes, <laughs> you know? It's kind of perplexing. It's funny, yeah. though. Are, are, you, are you a big horror fan or, or casual horror fan? Or? I, I, I would say casual. Sure. Of I course do. you are, because you've never seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I know, right? Sorry. Yeah, total <laughs> noob move. Yeah, I don't dislike horror. I, I, you know, I think my, my sort of curiosity for it has slowed a bit. But there are certain types of horror that really appeal to me. Um, a couple years ago, it was a couple years ago. When did Annihilation come out? 2018? I think that was last year. Yeah. So so last year when Annihilation came out, a lot of people were talking about it. A lot of people were comparing it to The Thing. Yeah. And that was enough to be like, oh, okay. That's something I should pay attention to. Sure. Um, I can't remember the last time I went and saw a new slasher movie and enjoyed it. Yeah. So... I'm trying to think if there are any slasher movies, like recent ones. It seems like they're sort of, they've gone away for a bit. Sure. A lot of found footage. Oh, that's not of... entirely true. We went and saw the new Halloween and you like that. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But again, that's, I think, uh, an anomaly. It's not like there's, yeah. you know, I think in like the 90s, certainly post-Scream, there was a big slasher revival uh-huh. that kind of petered out with a lot of the remakes of things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th. Um, and then we got into that the torture porn yeah. phase of the early 2000s, which I wasn't into sure. the zombie revival. Um, oh, yeah, there's a lot of zombies and vampires for a while. Yeah. I watch, like, as much as I can, mm-hmm. when, especially when it comes to horror. Um, I'll watch, like, schlocky stuff and um, new stuff, old stuff, everything I can. Yeah. And I'm always trying to piece it all together in a sense. So last year I did, like, a deep dive into... Hammer Horror. Uh, the year before, I watched a lot of Giallo movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are Italian slasher films. And those are big influence on a lot of 80s slasher. Uh, not necessarily slasher like Texas Chainsaw, but more like Halloween or Friday the 13th. But I, I love a lot of that kind of stuff. And especially older horror stuff from the 40s and Universal Monster. Oh, yeah. I got into a Universal kick yeah. a few years back. When Val Luton produced horror movies like Cat People and Leopard Man. A lot of that weirder stuff um, from from uh, the golden age of Hollywood. Some silent horror stuff, and we'll be covering one yeah. uh, in the next few weeks. Horror is interesting because it's such a popular genre because it it could oftentimes it's cheap. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of great directors cut their teeth doing horror stuff. Yeah, 
um, most I think the most recent example is is the Paranormal Activity um, series. Those are made for dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. They made a lot of money. Before that, you know, obviously Blair Witch was was huge. Made a lot of money off of a very very small budget, and you know, the effectiveness of 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 that and, and paranormal obviously we could we could debate but um it's it's interesting it's a genre that's been along s- for so long and the recent thing now seems to be this weird this shitty term called elevated horror and a lot of these uh art house uh, production companies like a24 are putting out these horror movies that maybe have different aspirations mid samar is probably one example of that um I don't like that term at all. <laughs> I think yeah, no, all... I think it's 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 dismissive because yeah. um, well, I think it's easy to because you're right, horror is cheap. It's easy it's easy to make it. It's always gonna draw a crowd. Yeah, because it's thrilling and it's um, it's you know fear is universal. Sure, but I think it's dismissive to suggest that you know there are this recent surge of um, of horror filmmakers with grander ideas. Than just kind of like bottom of the barrel grindhouse garbage because sure. I think even in like in that space like this is very much a a grindhouse movie, but it's super effective and knows what it is and it does it all very well and that's always existed. Yeah. Um, you know, by that definition, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist are elevated horror. You sure. know what I mean? Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, it, it's not um, it's not new. No, I think it just happens to. You know, for whatever reason, maybe it's refreshing because it's not a superhero thing or something. You know, it's just maybe people are people seem to be sporadically attracted to horror. And when I say people, I mean, like, you know, critic, uh, the critical community. Sure. They seem to like it's always going to be there. It's easy to kick when it's, you know, in a rut and it's easy to to say it's a a sort of another horror renaissance when you get a couple in a row that are, you know, really worth taking note of. Yeah. But you can say that about any, you can say that about comedy, you can say that about, you know, big budget tentpole movies, you could say that about, you know, adventure stuff. It's, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, with things like Netflix and um, Amazon and all getting into the, to the content game, I hate that term too, but um, they're doing a lot of almost directive, to video, I guess is the term. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, horror stuff is popping up left and right on on Netflix, so they have like a deep well of stuff. So I think you can find a lot of schlocky stuff in there if that's kind of what you're looking for. But sometimes it's just that kind of difference between you know people like they want to find a movie that does what it says on the label, whether that be you know TNA and lots of gore. You know, there's there's still avenues for that and. Um, whether it be something that is maybe has loftier ambitions, that's there too. I think, unfortunately, you know, the way people talk about the loftier stuff sometimes is a bummer because, you know, they say they miss the more things that know exactly what they are, the genre kind of things that double down. And in 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 reality, there's only like two or three of those a year. So I don't really think it's that big deal. But again, like superhero stuff, it's just the way we talk about things that I think that frustrates people. Mm-hmm. It's the conversation around it. It's not the movies themselves. We got one Midsommar this year, you know. Um, that's not like, that's not ridiculous, I think. I mean, 
Um, Robert Eggers, uh, his first movie is The Witch, which is a movie I really love. He has another movie coming out later this year called The Lighthouse. And um, so that's another one that might be considered in that sort of um, wheelhouse. Sure. Um, but I've seen some pushback to it because it's just like, oh, just give me my schlocky genre stuff, you know. Um, but I, I love that's what I love about horror is that it, it can be all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it can sustain that for a long, long time. Yeah, I think it's reductive to put an entire genre of filmmaking into one category or the other. Sure. It can exist on a on a, a spectrum of, of what it means to be a horror movie. Yeah. So now that you've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, is this a movie that you think you'd revisit? Could this become like a new favorite or or is it something that you're like, oh, you know, I experienced this and now, you know. Oh, no, I'd like to watch it again for sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's stuff that I missed. Uh, I would like to just knowing you know knowing now how how pretty a lot of it is just to to watch that and really kind of soak it in and yeah you know appreciate that aspect of it i'd be curious to check out some of the follow-ups just because there have been so many in particular i i've heard the second one is kind of bonkers it's funny you say that because you know for our recommendations today i did want to recommend that if you enjoy texas chainsaw massacre to go and watch more toby hooper movies Mm -hmm. i think He's an underrated director because a lot of his movies are weird. Uh, And, you know, he gets a lot of uh, guff for the whole poltergeist kerfuffle. And there's a lot of uh, debate as to whether or not he was the director or Spielberg was the director. Some people, actors and whatnot, say that, oh, yeah, Hooper was the director. But other production people were like, no, Spielberg was kind of pulling the strings. Watching it, I think it's a good amalgam of, of kind of both sensibilities. There's some strange stuff in there that feels like Toby Hooper. Yeah, like when that guy starts picking his face apart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think he's like this notoriously elusive dude. And on sets, he's known for being sort of mumbly and a bit wishy-washy. But I think the work speaks for itself. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I, I really, really like. It's a weird movie. And to give you an indication of what it's like, the poster for it is the family... Uh, you know, the Leatherface's family um, looking gnarly and, and strange, as they always do, replicating the Breakfast Club poster. Dennis Hopper's in it too, right? Yeah, um, but that's the poster they released for it. So if that gives you an indication of the direction is, and it kind of doubles down on the on the humor. Mm-hmm. So people didn't really know what to make of it when it came out. Yeah, It's a little more of a straight-up comedy, but it has a lot of uh, of the same kind of elements. And just... Like they've like the budget is up, so they use it all for just some of the greatest horror production design I've ever seen. Yeah. Great lighting and texture, and uh, it, I really like that one a lot. I like Funhouse a lot, which is sort of like Toby Hooper doing Toby Hooper, where he's kind of cannibalizing his whole kind of <laughs> backlog <laughs> of movies uh, and references other horror movies, and um, and it takes place in a carnival. Uh, so it references Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and lots of other horror, horror stuff, uh, Psycho. Um, it's pretty fun and meta and, and also strange. It has like a, a weird sort of family at the heart of it, carnies this time. Uh, but I think it's uh, it looks terrific. Um, and then he also um, did Life Force, which is this really strange pastiche of hammer horror and schlocky b-movie stuff with just a lot of tna 
uh, and space vampires. It bombed when it came out. It's a weird fucking movie, but if you can get on its wavelength, uh, it's really, really unique. Um, yeah, I, I did see some comments on an article about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and commentators were talking, uh, or commenters were talking about other Toby Hooper movies, and, and someone said, um, yeah, Life Force is the best naked space vampires movie you'll ever find. <laughs> if you watch this movie when you were 13, you would automatically go through puberty. Sounds gratuitous. It really is, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, it's an interesting movie. And then, he, you know, Poltergeist obviously is mm-hmm. pretty terrific. Yeah. Um, and then he's got a few other w- random ones like uh, Eating the Live with, like, alligators and crocodiles and Robert England before he was Freddy Krueger and another gnarly kind of sweaty movie uh, that takes place in the, I believe, the Louisiana Bayou. No, maybe it's Florida. I don't remember. But, um, yeah, so I think his his movies are worth checking out um, if you like this one. Nice. Do you have any recommendations? Uh, yeah. If you haven't seen Midsummer, I'm going to recommend that. Um, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's a, a surprising amount of humor. It's um, really funny. Yeah. The, um, you know, it is very graphic in spurts the way Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. And it's also uh, another example of of horror and and really intense brutality happening in broad daylight, which yeah. so much horror happens in the dark. You know, neither of these movies leave a lot of visuals to the imagination. No. They really, like, let you sit and see what's happening to the characters on screen. Midsummer also has a, a really unique color palette. True. It's like all high key, brightly lit, but the colors are this weird sort of almost feels like a technicolor musical. Well, I think that has there's a, a strong um drug element to it. Characters yeah. are frequently taking uh hallucinogens and yeah. colors are cranked up and textures move. It all sort of plays into that. And, and like Texas Chainsaw to uh you know, a much lesser degree, it's very psychedelic. So Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Next week yes. we're gonna continue our our horror movie journey. So yeah. what are we talking about? Let's uh well, let's let's psych up the rest of the month. So next week we're going to be talking about Tales from the Crypt. We're going to be revisiting some old episodes of the HBO anthology series. Uh following that we're going to be discussing Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Uh she she wrote the novel uh The Haunting of Hill House which was yeah. turned into a Netflix series not too long ago. And that was that was really popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, rounding it all out, we're going to be doing uh, the silent film, The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, which, uh, yeah, I think going going forward, we're more on the same page, whereas, whereas uh, Texas Chainsaw was something Matt was passionate about and I hadn't seen going forward through our horror month. You know, these are all going to be things that neither of us have really uh, experienced yet, but have been familiar with. Yeah, for sure. Great. Looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher Premium, and Google Play. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And thanks, as always, to What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, where we record our episodes. If you want to learn more about them, you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at What Cheer Club and visit their website at whatcheerclub.org.